We are going to start today's show with a conversation with Betsy Corcoran, co-founder of EdSurge. As I said, Betsy was my editor at Forbes, and we spent, I think it was about three wonderful years interacting every week. I would make sure my article is on her desk every week. <laughs> and, and, and the most fun we had, I think, was when the financial crisis hit in, um, at the end of 2008. Um, I wrote a piece called Capitalism's Fundamental Flaw. And that piece was on the homepage of Forbes for a month, Forbes.com for a month. So, uh, and, and one of the earlier pieces that I did with Betsy, um, right when I started writing for Forbes, was um, something about, well, I don't remember what exactly was the title, but it was something to do with the Indian outsourcing industry dying, the death of Indian outsourcing. Now I remember, death of Indian outsourcing. I have never received so much hate mail in my life. You know, I live a very, you know, benign life. I kind of encourage entrepreneurs. What's so controversial about encouraging entrepreneurs, right? My goodness, that article was like a, it had hit some nerve somewhere, and oh my God, woof. So that's that's uh, how far we go back, and and it's a real pleasure, Betsy, to have you on. I know you've done great things with Ed Surge. I've watched from uh, from a distance. So uh, let's actually introduce Ed Surge a bit. Sure. Well, well, first, thank you so much for having me here. I think I've been part of one or two other roundtables, and it's always a delight. It's been uh, such an enormous pleasure to see how you've grown uh, one million by one million. And um, the work that you started at Forbes is clearly living on and inspiring people all over the world, and that is incredible. Incredibly exciting to see. Um, I think you've always been also yourself a fantastic entrepreneur because you're right. Your articles always showed up on time and well done. <laughs> and um, the you know the demands of being an entrepreneur are high. You have to show up every single day. And you have to be prepared. And so you are a wonderful exemplar in everything that you've done. Um, you're right, um, Shimana, that um, I left Forbes in uh, 2009. Uh, I spent a year learning about the education world, working uh, as a uh, volunteer IT person in the schools, getting under desks and counting computers and talking with educators. And what I learned at the time was that there uh, was a huge disconnect in the way that technology was built and the needs of the schools. Uh, and you like numbers, so you know here was the number that, that I was riveted by, which was that there was one IT person per thousand students on average in America. And that means that if you have desktop software that has to be updated one desktop at a time, you have an impossible problem. It is simply not going to work. And so what happened around 2010 was we had moved so much software into the cloud from a, from a corporate point of view. Schools starting to move software into the cloud made an extraordinary difference. So I, I love to think about that as a great example of how when there's a fundamental shift, it opens up a new set of opportunities. Moving software into the cloud meant that that one IT person per thousand students could actually now update, manage, and support 
um, software applications, and that made it workable in schools. So there were lots of other things that went on, but that was a fundamental part of um, the change. And so EdSurge, um, we started EdSurge to essentially be a sort of tech crunch of education. Uh, mm -hmm. And the fundamental mission was to give voice to educators to help them explain and say over and over, here's what we need. Because every great entrepreneur knows that you must listen to your customers, right? You say that all the time. I see it in your writing all the time. And it's probably the greatest truth and also the thing that's violated most egregiously sometimes by companies, which is you have to listen to the voice of your consumer. And so a big part of the mission of EdSearch was to amplify the voice of educators who are amazing people who are willing to put up with a lot of crap and so sometimes don't always say what is it that they need. And so uh, EdSearch, um, we grew for, uh, you know, uh, eight or nine years. Uh, at the end of last year, we were acquired by ISTE, which is uh, the largest association of educators using technology on the planet. Um, and uh, I stayed with the organization for the first six months to kind of help um, with the transition. And uh, then it was time for a break. And so uh, I left ISTE, which I admire enormously. I'm really proud of the fact that EdSurge is a part of that organization. And uh, the team has continued to do great work, continued to um, write, continued to support educators, and continued to try this, you know, try to expand on this mission of amplifying the voice of the users, the educators. Uh, and to try to explain how technology works and when it does and when it doesn't. So that's a little bit about EdSurge. And, um, yeah. So, so um, Betsy, we have gone through a huge shift. The cloud computing shift is huge, clearly. Uh, we started, you know, on our blog, we started the Thought Leaders in Cloud Computing series. Um, I'm trying to remember whether it was 2007 or 8, but it's been a long time. So, uh, you know, it's amazing nowadays all these companies that are going public with multi-billion dollar valuation, many of them have come through either our Entrepreneur Journey series or our, you know, Incubation Radar series in 2010. <laughs> I mean, we've seen these companies as fledgling companies, and I know many of these CEOs personally because of that. And it's, it's really become a very robust trend. But alongside, there is this other major trend that happened also starting in 2007. I'm again remembering our time together at Forbes when the smartphone was introduced, right? That was like Absolutely. a world and, uh, and And one of the applications, well, there are like a couple of applications that I use for learning um, during COVID. One of them I've been using for the last four years, but during COVID I've done it every day, which is Duolingo. I think it's an incredibly well-designed app, and I imagine there is a lot of that kind of great apps in the K-12 space as well. So could you talk a bit about the key trends uh, besides cloud computing, besides mm -hmm. the smartphone? Uh, if you double-click down into more of the ed tech space, what are you seeing? How do you synthesize these trends? Sure. 
Well, of course, it it doesn't take a a, a soothsayer or a genius to see what the the most important trend is right now, which is obviously been COVID. That has swamped every other factor, every other thing in our world. Um, and so uh, when I was thinking about this, um, I, I wanted to kind of identify a couple of different trends. And uh, you have to start with COVID because there's absolutely no question. Uh, it has obviously created this incredible um, step up to hybrid learning. Um, it has huge, huge implications for social-emotional learning, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the things you brought up in your essay later on. Um, and uh, it also has brought in a tremendous number of expenses to educators, to school systems that they had not anticipated. Nobody expected that they were going to be doing as much cleaning as we've all been doing this past year. So. Um, we do have to kind of observe that COVID has swamped virtually all the other trends that are going on. Um, a secondary trend to that uh, has been the economic downturn, which again has kind of been catalyzed by COVID. Uh, with that comes the work at home trend, the whole question of the role of parents in uh, learning, uh, and um, the fact that professional development is totally a train wreck right now, whether that's professional development for the educators or actually professional development for the parents who are, in many instances, now a primary teacher for their students. So there's a whole collection of trends around the economic downturn. Um, third set of trends, again, not rocket science. Uh, the bitterness of the political world has been a big deal, and um, the role of the federal government going forward in education is uh, really going to be interesting. What we saw was during the Obama administration, there was a very big role for the federal government. The Trump administration swung that way over to the other side, uh, basically kind of wiping its hands of pretty much so uh, anything except for some regulatory issues. Uh, the Biden administration, we, you know, we have yet to see. We don't have a Secretary of Education uh, appointment yet that's been made public. Um, and so um, we will see what the implications of that are. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, there's also kind of a whole collection of uh, sort of political trends that are really interesting. Um, a footnote to that is we've had a lot of conversation about the role and the need for civic education, I think what we've seen is an incredible uh, civic engagement by young people that transcends whether anybody wants to sit around and learn about how a bill becomes a law. Um, so I think civic education is kind of a really interesting area and is changing radically. Um, the, um, the, the, uh, there are some obviously other really huge trends that are going on. Uh, the role of artificial intelligence is a very interesting and very complex trend. Um, what we know is that there are, we've always known that every product is based on a set of assumptions, right? When you build something, even if you're building a mousetrap, you're building it based on a set of assumptions about how the world works and about how things work. In a mousetrap, those assumptions are pretty obvious. 
mouse likes cheese, perhaps, or likes food, and then the thing comes down and goes whack. Um, unfortunately, in software, the assumptions are not always obvious, and when you add in artificial intelligence, which is basically a way, as you, I'm sure, have talked about in great detail, uh, a way of using algorithms to sort of drive forward, sort of change, iteratively make change, the assumptions become murkier and murkier and murkier. So there's a whole interesting set of uh, questions around what the role of artificial intelligence is, how tr much transparency we, we could or even can have uh, around the assumptions and the implications that are built into that software, uh, and what those implications are for learning. Um, so there's a whole set of trends around that. Um, so, you know, those are really big things. We have had a cataclysmic change in our world. Uh, I, for one, expect that the implications of COVID are going to be with us for generations. There is no school on the planet that wants to be caught flat-footed again. We should and will expect to see viruses and pandemics uh, as a part of the, the landscape of our world going forward. And that means that schools are going to have to plan what's going to happen if we have to do a shutdown again in the future. All of those things suggest to me that hybrid learning is absolutely essential and will continue in some degree going forward. Um, and we don't have the tools to do that very well right now. Um, so. The, the, we, we have no lack of trends right now. <laughs> and, um, so uh, this is actually a perfect segue into my next question. What is not working? In COVID, obviously yeah. there's been a much bigger, much faster shift into online lear learning and learning from home, you know, like massive scale learning from home that the world was not quite prepared for perhaps. The, even the bandwidth was not there in a lot of cases, and uh, you know, especially in the in amidst poverty, there is not enough of a, an atmosphere, both technical infrastructure as well as just pure peace and quiet, to do that kind of learning at home. Uh, what else is not working from your uh, vantage point? Sure. So, number one, the social components are 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 really um, complex and are not necessarily working right now. Um, we had developed over, you know, generations, whatever, millennia, um, a set of expectations about what happens when we're physically together and how we interact. And um, all of those rules, all of those instincts are rendered mute or rendered different when we go online. Um, I've talked to students who, you know, have had both experiences. Some feel more empowered by being online. They can engage more. Some feel absolutely overwhelmed. Um, English language learners have pointed out to me that they don't always know which language they should be typing in, and that's complex. Should they be, you know, I talked to one girl who said, hey, I've got three keyboards in my life. I've got an English keyboard, I've got a Farsi keyboard, I've got, I think, a French keyboard. 
which language am I supposed to be communicating in when I talk to my friends, when I talk to my teacher, when I'm talking in this environment? Because in her real life, she would probably speak with her friends in Farsi and she'd speak to her teacher in English and then at other times she would use French. And, you know, what um, – she wasn't even sure which language she should be using at what point in time and which keyboard she should be using. And so that meant that her – ability to react was actually significantly slowed down. We haven't figured out any of those kinds of interactions. Um, for a huge, huge portion of uh, students, the classroom has been a safe place. It's been a place where they are physically safe. It's been a place where they are fed. It's been a place where, in some instances, they can get personal hygiene, clothing, you know, a lot of protective elements of their life. It's been a place where they've felt valued. Um, now, that may not be the case, as you've rightly pointed out. Not everybody has a beautiful home where they can sit quietly at a desk and, you know, focus on a keyboard and a screen. Uh, lots of families are sharing computers, are sharing tables. Um, they've got multiple things going on at the same time. Um, so we have not figured out any of those kinds of things in online working. Um, second area has to do with, are we learning? What are we learning? Um, so for better or for worse, we have a collection of measures of achievement in, again, the plain old-fashioned world. Um, we make people take tests, and we assign some value to those outcomes. Well, what does testing look like in an online environment? What's the measure between, um, you know, testing for knowledge and testing for competency? How are we demonstrating that? None of those things do we really have a very good handle on. And then a third area would be the interaction of the parents. I've talked to a lot of teachers who say, I realize that I'm not just teaching the kids. I'm teaching mom or dad or an uncle or a grandma or something like that. People know, teachers know, that just outside the boundaries of that screen, there may be other people lurking. And sometimes they're sharing answers. Sometimes they're speaking in other languages. There's all kinds of things that are going on in the periphery. We have no idea of who is participating in this education experience and how do we include them? Why would we leave them out? When we work in a company, we learn to work in community. We have to learn, work in community. Um, this has changed our idea of learning in community in a pretty profound way, and we haven't built up any set of ideas around what that means. So all of that is not to critique the amazing work that educators, families, kids have been doing. They've been incredible, and uh, the fact that we've learned you know, even half of what people have learned over the last six months is a testament to uh, the spirit, uh, the energy, the determination of educators, parents, students, all across the board. So please don't take anything that I'm saying as a critique. Um, but do we have a lot to learn? Oh, yeah. Well, it's an anthropological moment in you know, in the history of the human civilization. So it's going to be a year of slow learning. Well, you know what? We, it is an anthropological moment. Get used to it. Yeah. So, all right. Well, um, switching gears, 
Um, you know, we do this thought leaders in online education, thought leaders in EdTech series as well. And that also we've been doing for a long time, we're trying to try to cover as much of the trends as possible. So from what you, you've done it at a much bigger scale because your focus is just education, what are the most interesting EdTech startups on your radar at this point and why do you consider them to be the most significant and important? So I'll give you a couple of different areas that I'm really intrigued with. And I can't tell you that these are going to be the companies that will win or, or you know, sort of become, um, I hate the word unicorns, but, you know, whatever. But I think that they're interesting and important. Uh, so number one is infrastructure, right? Um, we're currently having this conversation on uh, a WebEx platform uh, from WebEx, WebEx gave birth to Zoom, of course. We all know that story of how Eric uh, sort of uh, took what he learned at Cisco and, and moved on. Um, I would argue that there's an opportunity to build a new set of platforms that, once again, speak better to the needs of the people who are using them. Zoom wasn't built for learning, wasn't built for education, was built for meetings. And a certain way that we have historically done meetings. It assumed that most of our meetings, that many meetings were still in person and that we could simply extrapolate from the in-person meetings to online meetings. Um, I think that we're at a stage that's, and Shramana, you'll, Shramana, you'll, you'll appreciate it, hopefully, uh, because I'm dating myself and I won't mind too much, but if you think about where we were in, say, around 1993 um, with web browsers, there were at least a dozen companies of which, um, you know, originally Mozilla became Netscape, became, you know, one of the most uh, crucial and important ones. But there were like a dozen different companies that were all coming up with versions of a web browser. I think that we are potentially at a comparable stage. Uh, Zoom or WebEx made or Microsoft Teams are all big players, but we're starting to see a group of newcomers, including uh, groups like Engagely, which uh, is started by um, some of the folks who are involved with Coursera. And uh, there's also Zoom EDU, which has nothing to do with Zoom, or I think it's called Education EDU. I get a little confused by it, but uh, Michael Chasen, one of the founders of Blackboard, um, we're going to see the evolution of new um, ways of doing this online collaboration, and I think we're only at the beginning of that. So I expect to see a lot to go, a lot going on in the infrastructure stage. Um, secondly, uh, upskilling. Um, there is no question about the need for everyone to continue learning. Um, and um, Duolingo has been a wonderful example of language learning, a specific thing, but we're seeing a tremendous amount of work around how do we help learners make that transition to the other things I need to learn in my life. Uh, Guild, OnRamp, uh, Little Company, uh, Career Karma, all of these folks are aimed at trying to help people figure out how do you go from where you are to where you want to go next. And I think the upskilling and the um, or or sort of adult learning category has got a tremendous amount of growth and a tremendous amount of um, opportunity for it. 
Um, a third area is I love some of the things that we're seeing that bring joy and fun to us. We've started to see a few, um, you know, some of them are really silly, right? And they're outside education, but they could become an indicator for things going forward. Um, mystery games. Um, we do want to figure out ways to have fun kind of collectively, um, <laughs> things that don't necessarily involve whacking, you know, little things oh. over the head. Um, but some of the mystery games and uh, things like um, sketchy are really intriguing. How do you kind of inject a sense of fun into what's going on? And then finally, I think that this moment of all moments is a huge, huge opportunity for international entrepreneurs. We are going to see a tremendous number of people really building for their own markets. Um, and uh, it could be everything from uh, all of the categories that we talked about. Um, Solo Learn is kind of a great example of a company in Europe that's been doing coding, you know, boot camps and coding camps. We're seeing a lot of those things come up. And so I think that the opportunities for international entrepreneurs are really huge. So um, you touched upon this a little bit. Um, so in COVID, one of the very disturbing trends has been teachers have, a lot of teachers have been compelled to come back into class and a lot of older teachers have retired as a result of that because they don't feel safe going into teach. Um, well, how, do you, how do you parse this thing? I mean, on the one hand, having younger teachers is going to accelerate the adoption of technology, no question, just because they are digital natives and they're going to be more comfortable in a technology-driven universe. But, but it is also taking out a wealth of wisdom out of the system. And, and, and it also there's like all these people who were nowhere near retirement, uh, ready to retire, what are they going to do with their potentially immense skill in teaching? Well, um, the, um, we have been uh, concerned about um, a shortage of teachers for the entire 10 years that I've been intimately involved in the education space. We've been both predicting and incredibly concerned about um, a huge shortfall of educators. So to some degree, you're correct, but to some degree, this has also been, you know, a perennial issue. Um, on the, I don't know whether it's a positive or a negative. I think that we, you know, one of the things we've clearly seen is we've seen uh, families of means create um, small pods and accelerate the, quote, home, what had been the homeschooling trend, accelerate that in a really, really interesting way, right? A lot of yeah. homeschoolers originally began homeschooling either for religious reasons or um, out of desperation or because kids had special needs, that sort of thing. They've now been joined by a big community of people who, quite frankly, have the means to hire tutors for small groups. So to some degree, there are going to be opportunities for educators to, quite frankly, be tutors to smaller groups. This mm -hmm. is not necessarily a socially equitable or positive trend, so I'm not I'm not sort of cheering about it, but I'm saying it's it's the fact of life. 
there are going to be opportunities for teachers to teach small groups and small pods. And I think that there will be some segment of the population that figures out that they're going to keep doing that. Yeah, that's actually a good idea in, in the sense also that while you say it's not equitable, but at least these, this, there's a large population of people who will potentially find employment through those tutoring opportunities. So, and that is important because there's so many segments of people that are, you know, the older nurses are also going through the same experience. The retail workers um, are going through the same experience. There's a, there's a lot of people out there who, uh, who need to be absorbed somehow into some sort of a work, um, you know, gainful employment model. Absolutely. So it's not all bad that it's, um, that it's happening. So um, what are your thoughts about reskilling the unskilled sector? I think, uh, you know, I've, um, I think you know my friend Gus Tai uh, at Trinity Ventures. Well, he's mm -hmm. retiring. Um, he and I have been talking quite a lot about, um, you know, what has caused this hyper-polarized country and, uh, and even the Trump phenomenon and so forth and this uh, the unskilled population that is really struggling to live with dignity. What what are are there you know technology startups or, or efforts that you see in the tech space for reskilling the unskilled sector? Because where we are going on top of the COVID trend, if you layer on the AI trend, there's massive automation coming down the pipe, which I'm sure you've really seen my immense body of writing on this topic. It's been a concern for me for years now. So um, we're going to, you know, see a one-two punch there, and what's going to happen? Well, um, you know, as you said, you've written about this pretty extensively, and I don't claim to be an expert. Um, I think that the um, – take a company like Guild, which is – not exactly solving your issue, but but is interesting and may offer some directional ideas, right? So what Guild does is it collaborates with um, employers such as Walmart or McDonald's or you know groups that employ large, large, large numbers of folks who may or may not have great skills, um, and it offers those employees an opportunity to improve their skill sets. And sometimes they're improving their skill sets with the goal of, of getting a better job within their company. But the interesting thing is that Guild has convinced these employers that it's beneficial to offer uh, learning opportunities, uh, even if the result is those people then say, oh, now I can do X and I don't need to work for this company anymore, but I have another opportunity. Um, that's really compelling and, and I think very powerful. Uh, right now it works because it gets funded by those large companies, the Walmarts and, you know, McDonald's and, you know, other organizations like that. Um, your question is, okay, well, what about folks who haven't even kind of made it to that sort of level of employer? How do they get those kinds of opportunities? And I, if I had that answer, I, I should be, you know, Secretary of Labor, I think. But, um, but um, I, I think that we've got to continue to search for those opportunities. There is a huge role for government 
to help subsidize those opportunities for people who are currently underemployed, unemployed, um, without opportunity. Um, but the, the critical thing is that it takes real work to design pathways that lead to authentic employment, right? And the, the challenge is to make sure that we're not just trying to educate people for the sake of, like, feeling good about ourselves or feeling like, oh, yeah, you're on a path, but then it becomes a path to nowhere. So there is a huge role for employment organizations, for coaching organizations, for, um, for folks who can really help be guides, um, true Sherpas, in helping um, designate paths. Um, as media, we also kind of, quite frankly, need to write more about the paths and the ways people are succeeding. One of the things that was compelling to me at EdSurge, and I know you do as well, is when you show people here's a path, then they can follow it, right? So at EdSurge, we had lots of people who said, oh, I was a teacher. I didn't know I could start an ed tech company until I read EdSurge and I saw all these people doing it. This is exactly what you do as well. You show people how to be entrepreneurs. Where are the groups that are showing people how they can build careers when they don't have those skill sets? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But I think that there's I think there's room for that as well. The role model notion is a very powerful notion which was at the heart of what I did with the one million by one million. Exactly. Concept inside in in one million by one million is the concept of role models. So, um, Betsy, this is a philosophy question. Uh, we uh -oh. were, you know, I may have told you this. Um, I started a literary group uh, with with a group of really great people, and some of you probably some of them you probably know. Um, I, so we've been doing this since 2016, and uh, we do a project each month, and, and this is like heavy-duty stuff. We started with Dante's Inferno, Inferno, and then, you know, Nabokov's Lolita, and this and that, and so <laughs> one of the projects that we did this year, just recently, is uh, Montaigne's essays, and one of his essays is about education and on the education of children is the precise name of the essay. And uh, he, his you know, point is that there's only one thing you actually need to teach children, which is philosophy. And my observation is that that is the one thing that we don't teach children or adults mm. in, in, uh, in the world. Nobody teaches philosophy, and as a result, we get these extremely philosophically weak leaders and I would I would put Mark Zuckerberg in that category as somebody who's wielding <laughs> enormous power and has no capacity to think with you know fundamental philosophical concepts. So any thoughts on uh, on this observation or are you seeing anything like civic leaders emerging without any training in philosophy or any uh, pedagogy in philosophy is kind of dangerous. Wow. Um, that's a, a really interesting question. I can't speak to the training Zuckerberg has or has not had in philosophy or so forth. Um, so I'm going to counter with something slightly different, which uh, I would, wouldn't do on anybody else's podcast other than yours, 
which is, uh, with your permission, I would like to read a poem. I've been reading some poetry recently because I think poetry also helps you understand the world when it's very complex. I've got a very short poem. I did not write it, just to be 100% clear. It's written by a, a poet whose name is Brad Aaron Maudlin. And it's called, What You Missed That Day You Were Absent from the Fourth Grade. May I read it? Yes. Very short. By all means. Mrs. Nelson explained how to stand still and listen to the wind, how to find meaning in pumping gas, how peeling potatoes can be a form of prayer. She took questions on how not to feel lost in the dark. After lunch, she distributed worksheets that covered ways to remember your grandfather's voice. Then the class discussed falling asleep without feeling you had forgotten to do something else, something important, and how to believe the house you wake up in is your home. This prompted Mrs. Nelson to draw a chalkboard diagram detailing how to chant the Psalms during cigarette breaks and how not to squirm for sound when your own thoughts are all you hear, also that you have enough. The English lesson was that I am is a complete sentence. And just before the afternoon bell, she made the math equation look easy, the one that proves that hundreds of questions and feeling cold and all those nights spent looking for whatever it was you lost and one person add up to something. Beautiful. And it's so much in tune with my philosophy. I, I know why you read it. Yes. Perfect. So I, I, the short answer is there are many things we don't learn in school. All of those things in that poem are all the things we wish we learned in the fourth grade, but perhaps many of us take an entire lifetime to learn. Um, we've got a lot to learn about what we're trying to learn and how we're Not trying to that, raise children. Where we are, we live in, in this uh, excess-ridden world of Silicon Valley where, you know, people think they're enormous billions are not enough and they can't find happiness and they have to basically create these orgies in Park City, Utah to feel whole. That's kind of sad that, you know, I, one, of the, one of the points that I've made in One Million by One Million repeatedly and, and for a long time is excess is not a requirement for success. Um, and if you have mastered that, I think you have mastered life, more or less. <laughs> I think that we all have a lot to learn, and I love that poem. I put it in the chat there to share with you. It's part of uh, poetry readings that are uh, a podcast called Poetry Unbound, which I have been uh, enjoying enormously, and um, I think it, it's a good reminder that all of the things that we learn are not always the things that we measure. <laughs> But sometimes the most important ones are, are, you know, I, I love this line, how to, how to realize that the home that you wake up in is your home. I think that's really that's profound. profound. It is really profound. We go to a lot of hotel kind of houses that are not homes. 